invite you to open your pew Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter this morning as part of our series on the book of Daniel. You'll find that on page 882. You will also find a outline in your bulletins uh, if you uh, want to take notes as well. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open throughout the duration of this message. We'll be looking very keenly at it and uh, what the Lord would have to share with us this morning through it. It's a very familiar passage, obviously, to many of us this morning, um, a text that even uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of non-Christians all around the world are familiar with. This is Daniel in the lion's den, the childhood favorite of many. Uh, but I hope, particularly this morning, that there are some elements uh, of it that we might not have considered before. I think it's a, it's a, a gospel-centered, encouraging text, if you really think about it in, in plummet's depths, um, especially in the midst of opposition to the Christian faith even today. Let's learn about that together this morning. This is Daniel chapter 6, the entirety of the text. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above, above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. And then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. 
Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the, lion, into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. Enduring forever, his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's ask the, word, the Lord's favor upon this text this morning. Father in heaven, who has spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days you have spoken by your Son, the incarnate Word. We pray that you'll open the mouth of of me, your servant, this morning to proclaim that Word in the power of the Spirit. And we pray that this uh, same Spirit will open the hearts of those assembled here this morning. Soften our hearts and our ears, Lord, to be receptive to your holy gospel and write it on our hearts, even as you have promised All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hic sunt dracones. Anyone know what language that is? It's it's Latin. (laughs) Uh, It's a Latin phrase that translates to here be dragons. It's it's come to be recognized as um, standard nomenclature for dangerous or unexplored territories. And it harkens back to Uh, A medieval practice where cartographers or those who create maps uh, would draw illustrations of dragons, of sea monsters, and other mythological creatures on uncharted areas of maps um, where potential dangers were thought to exist. And the oldest globe we have in possession that depicts this um, is uh, called the Hunt Lennox globe, dating all the way back to 1504. So this is quite an old practice. Another classical phrase that cartographers would use, though, medieval cartographers, is hic sunt leones. This is here be lions, also meant to denote unknown territories on maps. Now, when we think of lions like dragons, we think of mighty beasts, large, intimidating, dangerous creatures with 
incredible fangs that can destroy its prey in just a matter of minutes. They strike fear into our hearts when we perceive their power in the animal kingdom. You can think of the Savo man-eaters of the late 1800s that were responsible for the deaths of many construction workers on the Kenya-Uganda Railway and their very unusual method of stalking and uh, killing their prey and the manner of the way they hunted. Uh, In fact, you can actually see them on display in the Field Museum uh, in Chicago. And as markers on a map, hic sunt leones, they signified danger. What a picture, isn't it, that lions would be designated as a marker of danger on a map. Think now on a global scale. One giant lion's den, one giant lion's pit. The world, place of darkness, of evil, of sin, and this is where you and I find ourselves, in the world. We're in this world, but as Christians, we're reminded that we are not of this world. And the world doesn't like that. And so it proves itself dangerous. It's a battleground for Christians. It's a place to stave off lions. When I say the world, what I mean really is this anti-Christian sentiment so often expressed by communities and systems, small and large, around us that are clearly hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ and its impact on those it touches. The darkness hates the light, and it will do all it can to snuff that light out. Thanks be to God, though, we have the assurance that that will never happen. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. But that doesn't discount the struggles with opposing forces that we face in this life, whether that be yesterday, whether that be today, or whether that be tomorrow. These struggles, this wrestling with the enemy, we know they take many forms. We can think particularly of uh, the actual end of life persecution that we hear of and see so often in the Middle East and other nations. But if we open our eyes, really there's opposition all around us, if uh, even in subtler ways. And we're called to stand our ground and fight. Do we dare profess our faith in the midst of such a hostile environment to Christianity? It's gotten to such a degree over the many decades how anti-Christian this world is becoming. Well, if we do profess our faith, forces rise up and they bare their teeth. In the world's eyes, they appear victorious and we're the losers. But God is not the God of losers. He's not the God of the dead. God's people suffer at the hands of his enemies in all ages, and even for his people, all hope is lost. But according to our passage this morning, we even hear from a pagan king that God is the God of the living, and only the living God can save his people from opposition and death. And he is to be praised because of such things. And the story of Daniel in the lion's den is going to help us realize this even more. So in two two points, if you follow along in the outline I've provided, we'll see, first of all, that God's faithful people may be struck down, but God's faithful people will never 
be destroyed. So first of all, God's faithful people may be struck down. And really, uh, the context of what takes place here before Daniel is struck down and persecuted is really blessing, or being a blessing, I should say. Daniel's role here in Babylon is of a very high uh, calling and prestige. Verse 1 tells us that Darius set 120 satraps over the kingdom. These are governors uh, over provinces in the Persian Empire, and they're responsible for security and tribute towards the king. And over these satraps, you have three other higher officials who are appointed over them. Daniel is one of them. Furthermore, we learn that Darius has actually hatched plans to uh, appoint and set Daniel over the whole kingdom. Uh, Daniel is quite old at this point, probably anywhere from 80 to 90 years old. Um, So a very uh, prestigious place for him to be in. But why was this? Well, we learn in verse 3 that this was really nothing in Daniel of, of Daniel himself but that this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps. Why? Because an excellent spirit was found in him. That is to say, godly wisdom was granted to him. As Daniel lived his faithful, God-fearing life in the city of Babylon, he honored his covenant Lord where he was, who bestowed upon him wisdom, that he might be a blessing to this foreign country that he is in. No doubt Daniel probably reminded himself of God's word in Jeremiah 29, 7, which says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Daniel was doing what he was called to do in this foreign land. We might say if Daniel was in our shoes today, uh, he was simply enough being a Christian where he was at what he was doing. Daniel, he exuded the faith that he had, which he had put on display to the people. Brian Chappell says, we are to bring the righteousness, grace, and rule of our God to all dimensions of our lives, not just here in the sanctuary, but outside as well to a watching world. We can apply that to our own inner spiritual lives and then how that is lived out by the work of our hands and the conduct in society. Can people tell that you're a Christian? By God's Spirit, we can be a blessing to this opposing world. And that is what Daniel is in Babylon. He is a blessing. The world is not a fan, though. The world is against God's people. Once again, we have this another plot <laughs> to destroy God's faithful servant in the book of Daniel. Even though he was a good guy, faithful to his calling, worldly opposition raises its ugly head. Look at verse 4. The high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But get this, they couldn't find any ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Daniel was obedient through and through, faithful to his God in love and obedience, and yet opposition, albeit somewhat subtle at this point, still came, still came knocking at the door. Now, scholars think that this opposition was a kind of jealousy on the part of Daniel's colleagues because another guy from another land was um, being called to these higher positions than they were that they thought they rightly deserved. 
But because they could find no fault in him, they hatch a plan to pit David, Daniel's faithfulness to God against the law of the land. And this is what they seek to do. Verse 5 tells us that the high officials in the saved traps came to agreement. Now, this language is very interesting because this portion of Daniel that we're in, amongst, amongst other um, chapters in this portion of Daniel, is actually written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. And the Aramaic for these three words came by agreement is one word. It's, it's the word ragash. And it's got a corresponding Hebrew word, ragash, which depicts the nations noisily assembling against the Lord and his anointed. You'll find that verse in Psalm 2, verse 1, where the psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This plot of the high officials and satraps was to pit Daniel's faithfulness in prayer against his loyalty and service to Darius. But despite the high officials and satraps' sneakiness, thinking they're quiet, really, their actions are as noisy as a battle march. The situation here will appear to be daunting to us. In verse 7, we read that all the high officials of the kingdom, all the prefects and the satraps, all the counselors and governors are agreed that the king should establish this ordinance and injunction, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days will be cast into the den of lions. This opposition against one man is nationwide on a political scale. And yet Daniel remains vigilant in his faithfulness to God in the face of trial. Look at verse 10. This is striking here. Daniel knew that the document had been signed. He knew, and he continues in faithfulness to the Lord. He went to his house where he had no windows, or where he had windows, uh, in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Daniel continues to be faithful to the Lord, even though he knew this document by Darius was signed. This is a, a very public display here by Daniel. And it makes it easy for his enemies to latch onto the opportunity to indict him before Darius. I think we can really see here the importance of prayer in these opposing times that we find ourselves in. Uh, Daniel's practice can bring to mind these words of the Apostle Paul in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. We're reminded that prayer or any kind of spiritual devotion to God may be uh, perilous at times. It's not dangerous for us in the sense of our spiritual walk with the Lord. But externally, it may be risky and it may be perilous. But knowing that we are depending on the same God who rescued and saved Daniel makes these risks very wise. Okay? Do you and do I, do we maintain fidelity 
to the Lord when forces of darkness, this world, rise up against you seeking to tear you down? What about us here as a church? Will we remain faithful in these opposing times? I pray to God that we uh, do not fall away from orthodoxy. Because, oh boy, it is so easy. It is so easy to fall from the faith these days. The world is an alluring place. I think we really need to, to, to mark how easy the devil's work inside the church and pulling it away from its faithfulness is uh, these days. I think we need to, to mark these words very carefully. If the world nods its head in agreement and smiles in approval at the initiatives of a church, something is off. Something is off. The world should never, and I say the world, I'm talking about forces of darkness, the world should never appreciate the church. There are far too many churches that have caved to this world. Well, the opposition makes their case before Darius when they see him having this public display of faith. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, see the derision they even place upon him? They don't even uh, define him by his status in politics anymore. Just this exile from Judah. This man is worthless. Why is he here? He pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. And already you can, you can get the sense of grace and mercy in the person of Darius, knowing who this man of Daniel was to him and their relationship as friends. It's very interesting um, work of God's common grace in a pagan king at this time. But ultimately, a mere man, as we see here, will not be able to save Daniel, and he will not be able to save God's people. And because of this injunction against Daniel, he is now struck down. He is now thrown into the pit, thrown into the den of lions. And Darius's final plea is for Daniel's God to deliver him. Can you think today of opposing trials that you are going through, whether it happened this past week, it's going on today? Perhaps something will come into our lives that we are not yet aware of. Perhaps it's in the workplace, in your family, who are antithetical to the gospel and have no respect or regard for your walk with Jesus. As we go through these various trials, take heart because we have one who can sympathize with us because Christ himself went through so many trials similar to this. David Howell makes a very powerful observation when thinking about the excellent spirit that was granted to Daniel, uh, he says this, We who are in Christ must exercise the gift of his spirit given to us. We must be willing to pray, even if ruled against. We must be ready to obey him, even if in some way obedience is outlawed. In Christ, you and I must hold fast to our integrity when others rise up against us. And in Christ, we are empowered to do that very thing. We can do this because the ultimate handing over to death took place on the cross, where Jesus would quote Psalm 22 as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
It's a very familiar psalm to most of us. But do you know what else David wrote in that psalm? It's not something that our Lord quoted on the cross, but it's in Psalm 22. In verse 21 of that psalm, David wrote, Save me from the mouth of the lion. And that's exactly what happens. God's people may be struck down, but they will never be destroyed. By now, those those two points that I've mentioned probably sound familiar to you. Uh, they come from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, where Paul, uh, in describing the surpassing power of God, a power that is not of ours or in ourselves, um, writes how we are, uh, when struck down, not destroyed, amongst other things. And because God is who he says he is, he miraculously delivers Daniel and destroys his opponents. Verse 20, Darius inquires about the status of Daniel, calls out to him, O Daniel, servant of the living God. Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? So already we're getting this foretaste this, uh, of the, the power of Daniel's God, of, of our God, a living God. Daniel responds in the affirmative. He says, My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Furthermore, in verse 23, uh, the narrator writes, No kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. What could this mean? We could be asking ourselves a question. Did Daniel survive because he was good? Because he was a good person? Did he survive uh, because he obeyed enough? And God was just kind of reciprocating kindness to him? Absolutely not. That's the prosperity gospel. In no way are we promised that if we do more and obey enough, God is going to be more kind to us. Absolutely not. That would presuppose a kind of works righteousness. It's a view of salvation, which we know is antithetical to the message of Scripture and the gospel. So what is going on here? What we're seeing here is this connection between salvation and righteousness that we've received by the imputation of Christ in his work, the connection between that salvation and perseverance and endurance that is now a mark of a Christian. A true believer in Christ is firstly preserved, held in God's hands. He will never let you go. And because of that, you will indeed persevere and endure, faithful to the Lord to the end of your life. It is assured and promised to you. If you take a look at the order of the points of doctrine in one of our Reformed confessions, this is the Canons of Dort, you really see the beauty of what has happened. Normally, we associate the Canons of Dort with an acronym called TULIP, but that's actually not the order in which it really is presented to us. It starts with unconditional election. We have done nothing to earn our salvation. God chose you and I before the foundation of the world. Uh, secondly, we have limited atonement and Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. We read of total depravity, describing our spiritual condition before conversion. We have the grace of God towards us that is described as irresistible. You can't get away from it. And then finally, fifth point of doctrine, the perseverance 
of the saints. One theologian writes this, Christian disciples are not preserved in a dormant state without the fruits of faith. Rather, we are preserved by God in a life of faith and repentance, seeking continually to turn from sin to our Savior. From unconditional election all the way to the perseverance of the saints, God holds us in his hand through thick and thin through everything that we go through. And he promises that you can endure this. In the end, we're faithful to him because he has been faithful to us. And so it is with Daniel. As God is faithful to him, preserving him, Daniel is faithful and is found blameless. He has persevered through this trial. David Helm makes another poignant point here. Those who persevere in righteousness to the end are those whom God protects in death and brings forth into newness of life. Now that's, a, that's an important point there. Protected in death. That is to say, we might not be safe from physical harm, like Daniel was, but from the jaws of eternal death, hell, we are certainly safe from. This is why we must not even fear uh, physical opposition that may lead to death. The book of Revelation tells a very sobering account of what the future holds for the church, uh, for the faithful church, at least. Persecution, perhaps even death. In Revelation 11, we read of this um, symbolic depiction of what we call the two witnesses. Um, I believe these two witnesses uh, symbolize the church throughout the ages who testify about God. And we read there in that chapter when they have finished their testimony. The beast, we can see that as anti-Christian government and world power that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. But the beautiful part of this text is this. After these two witnesses, after the church is slain and um, lays in the streets for three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This is almost, if you read the ending of Daniel 6, almost a play-by-play in a microcosm of what we see here on a macrocosmic scale. Struck down, but not destroyed. We have resurrection brought out from the pit and judgment when Daniel's foes are destroyed. The question for us this morning is this, will we remain faithful still in this global lion's den? Hebrews 10, 35 through 36 says, therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised I think a a very beautiful account in church history that will really showcase this for us is the story of a martyr. 
uh, a Christian slave girl named Blandina. What I'm about to read from you um, is somewhat graphic. I think it's an important thing for us to, to learn from. It's an eyewitness account of the persecution in France or Gaul in the year 177 A.D., under the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, and it gives us a very intense picture of the treatment Christians suffered at the hands of the Roman authorities. But the account of Blandina is just absolutely beautiful. And when we read about the endurance that she uh, displayed to the eyes of pagans around her, it's, it's, it's a little, not super lengthy, but uh, I'll trust that you'll uh, be engaged as we read this account here. We read this. This is an, of an early church, church history textbook that we're reading here from Eusebius of Caesarea. The entire anger of the people, governor, and soldiers was stirred up furiously against Sanctus, the deacon from Vienne, and Maturus, a new convert, but a noble fighter, and Attalus, a native of Pergamum, where he had always been a pillar and support, and Blandina, through whom Christ demonstrated that things which seem lowly and obscure and contemptible to men are of great glory with God. Through her love toward him revealed in power and boasting in mere appearance. We all shuddered. And Blandina's earthly mistress, herself one of the martyrs, feared that on account of bodily weakness, she would be unable to make bold confession. Blandina was filled with such power that she was delivered and exalted above those who were torturing her by turns, from morning till evening in every way, so that they confessed they were conquered and could not do anything more to her. They were amazed at her endurance because her whole body was mangled and broken. They declared that just one of these forms of torture was enough to destroy life, let alone so many and so great sufferings. But the blessed woman, contending nobly, grew in strength by confessing her faith. She found comfort and rest and relief from the pain of her sufferings by exclaiming, in her words, I am a Christian, and we do nothing vile. Blandina was hung on a stake and exposed to the wild beasts who were supposed to attack her. She appeared as though she were hanging on a cross. Because of her ardent prayers, she inspired the other combatants with great enthusiasm. They looked upon her in her ordeal, and they saw with their outward eyes in the shape of their sister, the one who was crucified for them, that he might convince those who believe in him that everyone who suffers for Christ's glory has fellowship forever with the living God. Since none of the wild beasts at that time touched Blandina, she was taken down from the stake and thrown again into prison, preserved for another contest. On the last day of these contests, Blandina was again brought in, together with Ponticus, a boy who was about 15 years old. Every day they had been brought in to see the sufferings of the others and had been pressured to swear by the pagan idols. But they stood steadfast and despised the idols so that the mob became furious. They had no compassion for the boy's youth nor any respect for the tender sex of the woman. So they subjected them to all the terrible sufferings and took them through the whole course of torture, repeatedly pressing them to swear by the idols to no avail. Ponticus was encouraged by his sister so that even the pagans could see she was confirming his strength. After nobly enduring every torture, he gave up his spirit. 
But the blessed Blandina, last of all, having encouraged her children like a noble mother and sent them ahead in victory to the king, herself suffered all their conflicts and hurried after them, exulting and rejoicing in her departure as if she were called to a marriage supper rather than being thrown to wild beasts. After whipping her, giving her to the beasts and burning her with hot irons, the authorities finally dropped her into a basket and threw her to a bull. The beast gored her again and again, but she was now indifferent to all that befell her because of her hope, her firm hold on all that her faith meant, and her communion with Christ. Then she, too, was sacrificed. The pagans themselves admitted that they had never known a woman suffer so much or so long. What an account from church history that is. Congregation, we worship a God who is gracious to his people. He's also a God who displays justice against those who oppose his people, especially at the end, the last day. And it is this gracious God that the world will one day acknowledge as the God of the living, as Darius did long ago. A God whose kingdom shall never be destroyed, whose dominion shall be to the end. The one who delivers and rescues, who works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, this very one who so long ago saved Daniel from the power of the lions. This account of Daniel in the lion's den ends with verse 28. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus is that one Persian who, once he took over Babylon, gave the order to send the exiled Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, thus setting into motion the post-exilic period and the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Covenants, leading up to the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who will one day die on a cross for his people, seem weak and powerless in doing so, but will rise three days later, defeating sin and death. This is the God of the living. By his abiding spirit with you today, you can withstand opposition against you as hard as it may be, even if we are called to die physically, because in Jesus, we are very much alive spiritually. That is the great paradox of the Christian life. The apostle Paul reminds us in his second letter to the Corinthians, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, meaning Paul in his affliction, but life in you, the Corinthians, as they learn to trust God amidst adversity. Congregation at Beacon Light, in this world, here, there be lions, right? But by him who gave us newness of life, may we say with the Apostle Paul once again, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. 
Amen. Let's pray together. Our merciful God, who is pleased to condescend to speak to us through your word, grant us all grace that we may not be just hearers of this this morning, that we may take this now and manifest it in our lives to a watching world who sees us publicly on display, on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we bring glory and honor to your name in all that we do as you conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Preserve us, Father, by your hand of mercy, that we may persevere in all things by faith and obedience. All of this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.